0: Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40, page 1119 if you're using the pew Bible in front of you. This year, for the Christmas season, I would, I'm going to use a few of the texts that we see specially employed in Handel's Messiah, so appropriate that we would begin that uh, this morning. And this is the, the first, really what serves somewhat of an introduction into uh, Handel's Messiah. It begins with words from Isaiah chapter 40. So let us give our attention to the reading of Isaiah 40, the first two verses, and then we'll consider them together with the Lord's help. Hear God's holy word, which he gives to us for our good. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double For all her sins. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your Son's sake. Amen. When Handel's Messiah was first being performed in the middle of the 18th century, first in Dublin and then in London, it was certainly, I would have to imagine and have read some historical accounts, to say it was a public spectacle. Entertainment was much different back then, and when something came onto the scene that had uh, the the beautiful, soaring melodies, the the wonderful, almost majestic and heavenly choruses, something like this, it certainly was uh, in everyone's attention. And one did not have to believe in Christ in order to appreciate such a composition. That very fact became a, a source of worry to the great John Newton, author of Amazing Grace. He saw what was, what was happening around him and what was happening in, in London and the conversation around this great piece of music. And he had a concern, and his concern was, are we rightly understanding the work of Jesus as those who are going and taking in this beautiful piece of music are listening to it? Are they understanding the glory that all of these texts, these biblical texts, bring to our minds as we work our way through that great oratorio? So what he did was he preached 56 sermons on the texts of the Messiah. We don't have 56 services in this Advent season, so I'm going to have to make do with cramming 56 sermons into five or six. Just kidding! I'll just I'll choose five or six texts, and we'll open them up from there. But the hope is that, of course, will this will bring to our mind and furnish our mind with a a more uh, a clearer vision of what it is that Jesus Christ is and does for His people, that we would understand in a better way the work of the Messiah, so that whether it's taking in beautiful music or enjoying the Christmas season, enjoying time with family, that our minds and our hearts would be furnished with a, a better and a clearer understanding of all that Jesus has done for us. John Newton had a profound respect for the way that the Messiah had been ordered all of the texts as they had been arranged, kind of drawing a circle around the theology of the Bible, the theology of our salvation. And so he basically just walked from the beginning all the way through the end, opening up text by text. And basically there are three stages in that great piece of music and in the work of Jesus the Messiah. Really there is the the prophecy and the prediction of his coming. We find that in the prophecies leading up to it like in Isaiah. There's his life, his appearance, his suffering, his uh, rising from the dead, all the things contained in the life of Jesus. And then, of course, the blessings that flow forth from it. And one of the great parts about the Messiah, isn't it, is that there's that big, long section after the appearance of Jesus, that sort of unravels all that he does for us. It it, it ends with the chorus of the redeemed singing and praising the Lamb in the heavenly throne room. And so without all of that in mind, we turn to this passage in Isaiah, which serves as a a perfect introduction to the Christmas season, encapsulating all that our Savior does for us and understanding that the comforts that he brings is a comfort beyond all compare. In the old translation of this, you remember in Isaiah 40, verse 1, comfort ye my people. God is addressing Isaiah and other prophets. He's sort of saying, go, you go, and proclaim comfort to the people. He's not just simply stating it as a matter of fact and saying there exists comfort among my people. He's saying to Isaiah... To the other prophets of the day, go and give comfort to my people by declaring to them these things that I am about to tell you. This reminds us that the comfort that God gives is oftentimes mediated through those commissioned to declare it. God wants his people to hear a message of comfort and thereby to receive that comfort in him. Is, Isaiah is writing uh, before the exile, but this, uh, in a sense, encapsulates the prediction of the exile. These words were to be a comfort to the people of God while they were away in Babylon. Because though they will be taken away and be brought to Babylon, they nevertheless will be God's people. And so he says, speak comfort to Jerusalem. Jerusalem the people of God were to remember that when they were, after they were taken away from Jerusalem, after it had been conquered and they were away in Babylon, that nevertheless God had not forgotten them, that they had not ceased to be God's people, and that their identity was first and foremost in God's work in and for them. So this was why the idea of an advent of a coming of the Messiah was to be such a central hope for the Old Testament church and specifically for uh, God's people who were in exile. God would come. He was going to visit them in redemption. He was going to put his glory on display. He was going to bring them into blessedness. This furnishes us with an idea of what we are to be doing during the season of Advent. It's really the same thing. We live in between the two comings of the Messiah, but we are awaiting the coming of the Messiah. We are awaiting him to bring us home, to put his glory on display, to vindicate his name to the world, and to vindicate our cause to the rest of the world. So we are to be eagerly awaiting his return. The coming of the Lord is coming. We also are to remember that our identity is in the heavenly Jerusalem. We are a church that is in exile in the world. We are strangers and we are exiles. We are members and citizens of the city of God. And God says, Await my coming, for I will come for you to redeem you. So we look back to what has already happened, the first coming of the Messiah. We look forward to what is yet to come. He will come again. We see the comfort in Isaiah chapter 40 is really a, a threefold comfort. There are three things that are to be declared. There are three things that God's people are to remember. And there are three things in which they are to take comfort. That's what we see in verse 2. And the first source of comfort is the declaration that the hard service of God's people has been completed. We were singing earlier uh, the words from Isaiah 40, and older translations translated this as warfare. Their warfare has ended. What does that mean? Well, it obviously is a military term, but it would often be used to designate a period of time for military service. So in today's world, a, a military career is somewhere between 20 and 25 years, somewhere around there. And that would be the appointed time to serve and thus the the, the call to be comforted when that appointed time had ended. There was an appointed time for God's people to exist in a certain state under a certain organization of things, perhaps suffering punishment for some of the wrong that they had done, but that time would come to an end. Essentially, the promise here is that Difficult times were going to come to a close. Better times were ahead. The worst was in the past, and the best was yet to come. We can see how this is a, a big source of comfort. You could see why, kind of arranging the biblical message of salvation, you might begin with this very passage. Difficult times had come to a close. The best was yet to come. We can think of this hard service, this warfare, this appointed time, really encapsulating all of the years for God's people, uh, which included the decline of the monarchy from David and David's sin, and we see all of the ways in which David's sin sort of permeates through the people of God, disintegrates faithfulness and obedience all the way through Solomon and through the rebellious line of kings. For God's people, it really was a tough time time from David on. And that of all, of course, culminates in the exile itself. Samaria is conquered, the 8th century, Jerusalem is conquered, in the 6th century, northern kingdom and southern kingdom, both brought away into exile. That appointed time of difficulty, of suffering, it was going to come to an end. This is one of the ways in which we can better understand the office of king, Jesus, as our good and better David, our final king during the Christmas season. What was one of the reasons for Israel's downfall? It was poor leadership. David on down and all of the kings that we see in the scriptures, most of them very rebellious against God. But what is Jesus? What is the Messiah? He is a better king. He is a righteous king. He is a king who comes to show us the perfection, the fullness of God's kingdom. To bring it to a, a, a new state of glory and blessedness. it's a righteous king. There's another sense in, in which the warfare of God's people, the hard service, was going to come to an end. And that has to do with God's appointed time for his people to live under the law and the regulations and the worship of Moses. We have to be careful what we say here. We never want to give the sense that grace was not active in the Old Testament, that it was not present before Christ, and that the Old Testament church did not know grace. Of course they did. They knew God by grace through faith. But we also have to say that with the coming of Jesus, the types and the shadows go away. The fulfillment of the promise has come and there is a a greater clarity of hope that is given to God's people. There's a couple of doctrines that we could say really open up for us after the coming of Jesus. One of them is adoption. If you look at the way in which God's people understand our Heavenly Father to be our Heavenly Father in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's given much greater clarity in the New Testament because we understand That after the coming of the Messiah, after the coming of Jesus, we are united to him as we have faith in him. And being united to him, we have all of his blessings. And he has the blessings of the only begotten son of God. So united to this only begotten son, we look to our heavenly father. And we say he is the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You ever understand why in the New Testament... We call him the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, he's more often referred to as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So the doctrine of adoption is given a much fuller clarity in the New Testament. And because of that, we are given much greater assurance. How do you know that you are a child of God? Because you are united to the Son of God, the only begotten Son, through faith in him and his work the god's people had lived under these types and shadows the temple worship these uh, foreshadowings of the perfect savior they looked to faith in him but we are given greater clarity to all of those things the appointed time of living under the types and shadows has come or is coming to an end the second source of comfort is that our sins will be paid for. The the sins of God's people have been paid for. Notice the perfect tense here. Isaiah, of course, is speaking a long time even before the exile and certainly a long time before the coming of Christ, but there is this declaration that when God says something is going to come to pass, it is as good as done. Now, of course, sins were being forgiven in the Old Testament too. You need to be careful to make sure that that is clear. But with the coming of the Messiah, there is a greater clarity of hope. There is a greater clarity of um, of assurance in forgiveness. The book of Hebrews says that under the laws and the worship of Moses, one of the challenges for God's people is that their consciences were not being fully cleansed as they were seeing these sacrifices go on and on and on. Sins were being forgiven as they trusted in the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God. As they looked through the types and shadows to the Messiah, to the coming Savior. But, after he comes, there is this heightened forgiveness. There was this assurance that was lacking because there, was a, there had not yet been a once-for-all sacrifice in history, So the promise here, Isaiah is looking forward to the coming of the Messiah and comfort is going to be centered around the fact that God's people are going to see and they're going to be assured that there will be a sacrifice that happens in which you will be able to trust and see that all of your sins can be gathered up in this once for all sacrifice. As God's people, we look to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And because of who he is, because of his perfect work, because of his righteousness, we can be assured that all of our sins can be gathered up in that one perfect sacrifice and it's all paid for. Thus, our consciences can be fully cleansed. We stumble back into sin and we can have the assurance that because of Jesus' perfect work, the cross covers all of my sin. We also have the assurance that crucified on the cross, he was raised to new life and he ascends into heaven and he continues his work as our great high priest. So we stumble back into sin and how can we be assured that God the Father can still look upon us and see us as his children because our great high priest continues to intercede for us in heaven. That is why we have the comfort that all of our sins are forgiven. So if you are one of God's children and you're struggling with an assurance of your own standing before God, how do I know that my standing before God is certain? How do I know that my standing before God does not come into jeopardy? You look by faith to Christ and you must fill your mind with the perfect work of your Savior. You must dwell on the perfection of His work. You must think about and bring to your mind often how wonderful was His work for sin. The Old Testament saints longed to live with this clarity of assurance and hope and forgiveness. You you might liken it to turning on lights in a dark room. Those who live after the coming of the Messiah have this, this greater clarity of understanding that you can know, you can look to the perfect work of the Savior. That is true comfort. So look afresh to the work of our Savior And then secondly, glory in the forgiveness of sins. Glory in the forgiveness of sins. Are you understanding that having your sins forgiven in Jesus Christ is the greatest blessing you could have this side of heaven? Matthew chapter 9, Jesus heals a paralytic. But before he heals him, we read in verse 2, some people bring, brought to Jesus a, a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son your, son, your sins are forgiven. He forgives his sins and he comforts him with this blessing while he is still paralyzed so that he would know that even if he would not receive this physical healing, he has this blessing of sins forgiven. You struggle with an affliction, You're struggling with sickness. You're downtrodden because of any reason. Are you glorying in the forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ? Lastly, we see that he says the comfort. The Lord says this, declares this. Go and declare this comfort. Lastly, that Jerusalem has received double for all her sins. This statement is is a bit vague. What does it mean? Well, it certainly wouldn't be a comfort if uh, Jerusalem would be receiving a, a punishment that was doubly as severe as their sin called for. That wouldn't be a comfort at all. And we might also say that it's impossible to fully pay for sins in this life, for the wages of sin is death. So it seems to be that something will follow their appointed time of suffering for their sins that will probably bring some sort of blessing. And that certainly seems to be the best way to understand this. Go and declare to God's people that in the shadow, in the wake of their sin... They will receive not double the punishment, but double the blessing. The blessing that God has appointed for them to receive in the wake of their sin is far beyond anything they could have imagined or asked for. This really encapsulates the whole message of the coming of the Messiah. This encapsulates the whole message of salvation in Scripture, that where sin increases, grace abounds. Where sinful people show themselves to be exactly what they are sinners and sinning, that God's grace superabounds above and beyond their sin and conquers their sin. And because of that, the mercy of God is able to abound in forgiveness. Before an all seeing and all knowing God, the Old Testament saints, might have thought that they would never get out of the cycle of punishment. How are we ever going to get ourselves out of this? Because we continue to fail. We continue to sin. We continue to fall short. We continue to turn away from our God. And that would have been the case had God not intervened to make for his people a way to be forgiven. Where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more. One of the central messages of the Old Testament is that we need a Savior. And the comfort is that God provides that Savior in giving the Messiah. The comfort of the coming Messiah is rooted in the character of God because he's a God who delights to forgive. He's a God who delights to show mercy. He is a God who delights and showing steadfast love, so that is the threefold comforts in these short two verses. The time of misery is ending. Living under types and shadows, living under the, the suffering of, of God's wrath and His punishments, culminating in the exile. The comfort of sins being paid for, and then the comfort of, in the wake of their constant sinfulness, God will give a blessing beyond anything they ever could have imagined. It's the same comfort could have been spoken to Jerusalem in that day ought to be spoken to us. Our time of suffering, our appointed time of of suffering under our sin is coming to an end, and it has come to an end. And yet we still remain. In this world where sin and death oftentimes seem like they are reigning, but that time will come to an end, thus we look forward to the coming of the Messiah. We eagerly await his coming so that he might put an end to sin and death forever. We take comfort in the forgiveness of sins, we glory in the forgiveness of sins, and we glory in the fact that in the wake of our sinfulness, God has not chosen to give us wrath and condemnation, but he gives us blessing, for he delights in wiping our sins away and giving us eternal life. So, beloved, do you make an effort to keep all of these things about your Savior in mind? Do you make an effort to keep your own need for a Savior in mind? All Most church vows, church membership vows, have some kind of recognition that you are, a savior, you are a sinner in need of a Savior. In our own Psalter hymnal, it says, Do you, in our membership vows, do you confess that you abhor and humble yourself before God because of your sins, and that you seek your life not in yourself, but only in Jesus Christ? your savior. When someone takes those vows, there's something that's unsettling about that. This person is confessing that they are a sinner, that they have no hope and health in them. But of course, we understand that the comfort of the Messiah is knowing that you need to be saved. Do you take comfort in knowing that salvation is wholly the work of God? It's all about him. Think about the objects of his salvation. Uh, We, ourselves, could we have done anything to get ourselves out of our sinfulness? No. The sending of the Son of God, could we have been the ones who sent him? No. Could we be the ones who confer eternal life upon ourselves? No. It's wholly the work of God. And then, finally, are you finding comfort in that which cannot be taken from you? What is true comfort? What is lasting comfort? Are you finding comfort in that which cannot be taken from you? If we saw a madman who was in jail and he had convinced himself that his jail cell was his kingdom and he had fashioned a crown for his head out of scraps that he had found around his jail cell, we would not admire him. We would pity him in a similar way. Anyone who finds their ultimate comfort in anything in this world... We need to understand that that is madness. It is futile. It is trying to catch the wind. God says, here is comfort. Your suffering will not be forever. Your sins have been paid for. You will receive blessing and not punishment because of grace and because of mercy. The call upon us is to find comfort where it can truly be found. And comfort where it can never be taken away. Is that where your comfort is? What is your only comfort in life and in death? This declaration comes to us as a a beginning of the consideration of the work of the Messiah. His work is perfect. Uh, It is everlasting. It speaks a better word than the blood of bulls and goats. Wipes away sin. It gives us blessing where we receive or where we deserve punishment and condemnation. So look to him afresh and understand his work anew this morning and this Christmas season. Let's pray. only Father, we give you thanks and praise and adoration. We thank you for sending this son to be our sin substitute. And we come to sing his name. We say alleluia, amen. We are glad to be named as Christians in this world, to carry his name throughout our lives and to the ends of the earth. We pray that you will give us power and strength and courage by your Holy Spirit to do so. May we remember him, Jesus Christ, and his perfect work in this Christmas season. In his name we pray, amen.